In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadir Tulaku, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Studio number 310 Four four one zero five five five. I know many listeners, are, our hearts and minds are with the people of Iran at this time. And later in the show, I, I will likely talk about some of the issues related to what is going on there. I just say that because um, in some ways, as I was preparing for the show today to go on business as usual, doesn't feel quite right. But I'll start the show in a more traditional way, but I, I think it would be impossible not to consider the situation of what's happening in Iran at this time. So I will definitely be addressing that. Uh, Monday night, I was uh, supposed to have actress, comedian Nazanin Noor on the show, and we were had planned it from a while before, but with everything that was going on, we knew we would discuss the issues of what's happening. But then when we learned very late uh, that evening that there would be a candlelight vigil at the federal building. We thought rather than talk about what's going on, it's better to take uh, some kind of action, if it's, even if it's a small step of support. So uh, canceled the show Monday, might have her on next Monday uh, instead. Also tonight, um, if you're in Los Angeles, around the world, there are lots of protests, demonstrations, 7 p.m. at the federal building tonight in Los Angeles. Um, today is September 21st. I say that in case people are listening to the show on a different day. Um, there is uh, a gathering in support um, of the Iranians and of Iran and also uh, for Maso Amini. So uh, later on, as I said, I will uh, bring up more of these issues, but I'll, I'll get to the business as usual, even though things are not usual at all. Uh, so we'll get into the books now. Uh, tough to make a transition, but I'll do my best here. So the, the book for this week that I'll talk about next week is A Molecule Away from Madness by Sarah Manning Peskin. A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain. So look forward to uh, reading that and sharing it with you uh, next week. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about today is If Nietzsche Were a Narwhal by Justin Gregg. If Nietzsche Were a Narwhal, What Animal Intelligence Reveals About Human Stupidity. And I found this book to be very fascinating. Uh, the, you know, I, I joke, I judge books by their covers and their titles, and this one definitely uh, was good on both accounts. The title, If Nietzsche Were a Narwhal, really funny. The image on the cover is of a narwhal, which is like a marine mammal, I think it's a mammal, which has kind of like a horn coming out of its nose. And then uh, there's a picture of Nietzsche next to it with a horn coming out of his head. Um, but the book was very fascinating, bringing up some philosophical types of questions of understanding what is intelligence? Are humans so exceptional after all? 
and how through understanding animals and then trying to look at ourselves, can we get a better understanding of these different concepts of what does it even mean to be intelligent? Is uh, human intelligence actually a benefit from an evolutionary scientific type of perspective or not? And that off that uh, answer might seem obvious because when we think of in intellect and intelligence, we think, well, yes, humans were far superior to animals, all other animals. Um, and there's some obviously basis to that. Of there's complexity of thinking, abstract thinking, language, certain things. And he goes through in each chapter different aspects of human intelligence. Um, but really looking at, is it actually good in the grand scheme of things? But there are ways that we can think that other animals can't think. And of course, there are ways that animals can think and do things that we can't either, that we sometimes learn later and understand. And I would imagine we would have to have the humility to know that there are ways that they can think, perceive, and do things that we still haven't been able to understand because we can't see it. Just like bees can see certain types of light we can't see we can be pretty sure there's other ways that animals think and feel and, and perceive the world that we can't. Um, but so even this idea of what intelligence is, and he says it's similar to uh, the definition given by the Supreme Court several decades ago of pornography, that you'll know it when you see it, but that we think we know, well, yeah, humans, come on, we're just more intelligent. But what does it mean? And there are some definitions about flexibility of thought and flexibility of approaching problems. We can also think of it as doesn't make it your survival easier and better or more pleasurable, more enjoyable. But even using these definitions, we can see it's not really clear. Uh, is human intelligence actually good for us as a species and our survival? And every chapter starts with a quote from Nietzsche related to the concept of that chapter. And so there's a chapter where it talks about we can't judge yet um, the advancements of technology, he lists a few, that in a thousand years we'll know if they were good or bad. We can't judge right now. And the same, I think, could be said of human intelligence. Because, of course, it's allowing us to do so many things and medicine and advancements from science, technology, that we can see as being good things. But we can also see the ways that human intelligence can hurt us. Because those same types of things, technologies and things, first of all, we use them often for destruction, creating weapons, things like atomic bombs and different types of weapons, but also what we've done to the environment and continue to do is hurting the earth or really hurting the earth in the sense of making it less habitable for us. And so there are predictions that are made by different organizations. I forgot who made the prediction, but they essentially are saying there's a 9.5% chance that in the next, I think it's century, that we would, or was it millennium? I should be careful about quoting that type of statistic. But anyway, that we would make ourselves extinct based on what we've done and are continuing to do to the world. Um, you know, sometimes I wonder when we're trying to get in touch or have contact with other life on other planets, other galaxies, um, sometimes we think, well, there's such a vastness, so it's inevitable that there's life out there. And I think that's very true. Uh, but I also wondered, could there be a window of whatever creatures having the type of intelligence that we have, similar to our type of abstract thinking, things he talks about, like why thinking, that we can figure out cause and effect or try to figure out cause and effect, that is there some small window before that type of a uh, species destroys itself in some way because of its 
advancements? You know, it's kind of obviously a philosophical type of question that we can't know for sure, but I think it's something interesting to ponder that could there be this way what we see humans doing to ourselves that, and even we've had close um, existential threats like atomic uh, annihilation, which is still a possibility. We have enough atomic bombs on the in, on the world right now that are potentially could ruin or destroy the planet many times over, or at least kill all humans. So we still have this threat. So it's interesting to think about this. Does it make us have a better chance of survival? And so could it be that we don't have such a long time to try to contact one another because we unfortunately end up destroying ourselves? I also think for uh, some civilization to create the technology to contact one another probably takes a certain amount of unity and coming together. So it's not just the kind of hard skills of thinking and science and technology, but is there a necessity for coming together and having social harmony and unity as well? Um, but so if we look at survival, we can say, has our intelligence helped us? And it might be too soon to say because the type of uh, intelligence we associate with human beings, including things like language and other things, have only been around a very small amount of time when you consider the, the a global or a universe type of a time scale. So has it made our survival easier or, or better? Hard to say. Yes, of course, we come up with things like um, technology, medicine, treatments that help people survive and extend and prolong lives. That's true. But again, we also do a lot of destruction. And not only that, um, there are a lot of these technologies and things that we create, but they're not available to everyone. So when we think of, he talks about the average human, that could be a very uh, tricky concept to really get a hold of. What does it mean the average human? Yes, many people live quite well, but there's still many, many people who don't, who experience food insecurity and a host of other things that don't enjoy even the these advancements that we're saying our human intelligence has created. Uh, another way of trying to look at has our intelligence been beneficial is to look at has it made us happier. And so this is actually um, where the, the connection to Nietzsche becomes even more uh, clear because Nietzsche was this great mind, this great thinker, so in some ways represented a lot of these aspects of human intelligence and exceptionalism we might think about. Uh, but he also was notoriously miserable and unhealthy and went through a lot of suffering and pain. And it's not much of a stretch to think that a lot of his suffering came from his understanding of things, of existential types of threats and issues and these things that he pondered likely did not make him happier. So does it make us happier and feel better and live better in that sense? Are we happier than a chicken, happier than uh, a narwhal, happier than other animals you know these things are always hard to say because we can't know the experience of some someone else something else what we often do is we think oh what if i was a frog and i go i would be so bored and i would just jump around but of course if you were a frog you would have a very different brain and experience and, and you know the qualia so to speak would be different so yes if you imagine you as a frog you might be bored but is a frog less happy than us or feeling more uh, less calm or whatever other ways you measure it, it's really hard to say. This is also something we do with technology. We think, oh, people must have been so bored before because they didn't have iPhones and they didn't have TVs 200 years ago. But when something doesn't exist and you're living your life, you don't think of uh, what's missing. Just like 500 years from now, they're going to look back at us 
well, if we're still here, but 500 years from now, if we're still here, humans will look back at us and think, oh, look at how boring and simple their lives were. Yet we don't think about that and think we, we need something different. So, um, but anyway, the book, you know, goes through these different things, even looking at consciousness and um, part of human exceptionalism at times is for, is for people to think we are conscious or our consciousness is so different from other animals. And he talks about maybe, you know, there's a complexity or even there's more things that we might be conscious of because we can have different things as he uses this analogy of like an improv stage or a stage where different things might be in the spotlight or more things can be in the spotlight for human beings. But it doesn't mean other beings, other animals are not conscious. Even insects can be conscious. There's debates about that if they are or not but maybe they are also conscious. And of course, this brings into mind uh, ideas related to do we harm animals? Can we or should we be allowed to harm animals or think that it's okay? Part of human exceptionalism at times is this mindset that we are, you know, all animals are our dominion. And you know, this also comes from religious types of mindsets, but this sense that we can do whatever we want to the natural world, including animals, and use them in whatever way we'd like, and that's okay. Um, but is that okay if we think that they're conscious like us and they feel pain like us? Can we justify that? Um, also, you know, he looks at things like our abilities to think in abstract ways or come up with causal uh, reasoning, um, and is that a good thing? But you can see that as humans, we, yes, it can help us in certain ways, but we can be very stupid in the ways we use reasoning to justify horrible things. So even if we look at things like genocide that has happened throughout history, there's always some type of a quote-unquote reasoning behind it and justifications behind it. Even Nietzsche's words were used, uh, really misconstrued, one could say, uh, related to the Holocaust and justifying the Holocaust. Um, and so we are very good at finding ways to justify really what we want for ourselves long-term, but especially short-term, we're incredibly good at coming up with reasons ad hoc to justify whatever it is we want to do. Um, and we think we're using reasoning, but really, are we? And so we can see that our human reasoning even has taken us down really bad paths. Yes, there is violence in animal, the animal kingdom between species and even within sp species, things like chimpanzees, for example, but they don't come up with reasons to, uh, kill all the animals of some region just because of like, let's say, purity of their race or things like that, that we can do. So are we really better than them? And so these are the types of questions that uh, Justin Gregg brings up throughout the book, which I found quite fascinating in trying to understand ourselves better. I do myself think that the ways we try to look at ourselves as exceptional comes from the sense of also a human possible need or ways that we abstract things and think about things. But this concept of wanting to be special, of standing out, even we see this in children, of wanting to be seen. And so we find ways to put ourselves above other people, other whatever it might be, but also even other animals might be the final domain where we can say, okay, well, at least I'm better than animals and I'm superior. Um, but I think we often find ourselves in uh, not a great place when we pursue those types of ways of thinking rather than recognizing my goodness doesn't have to come from other things being bad or me being better than them. I can just see myself as good in, in the way. Uh, so I've, I highly recommend the book. Um, really gives you a better understanding or gives you some ways of thinking about our human intelligence, what it means. Is it really good for us? 
time will tell in some ways. Uh, I thought of this analogy of, you know, well, yes, getting bigger or stronger might seem good, but you can get so big that it hurts you, right? Or uh, if an animal was able to jump so high, it might feel like, look, we can h- jump higher than any animal, but if it jumped so high that when it landed, it died, it wouldn't necessarily be better that it could jump higher. And so in some ways we can think higher, we might think, or think in these different ways, but it doesn't necessarily mean it serves us from an evolutionary perspective. So again, some quite interesting philosophical things to ponder. Also, you learn a lot about animals and their types of intelligence and things they experience, but then also see some perspectives on human intelligence, human experience, and what that might mean for the benefits or the detriments of our human intelligence. So again, that was If Nietzsche Were a Narwhal by Justin Gregg. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. As I mentioned at the top of the show, it was hard to talk about anything other than what's happening in Iran right now. Um, everyone I'm talking to that's Iranian, part of what we you know call the Iranian diaspora, Iranians who are of Iranian background or descent but living around the world. Um, our hearts, our minds are very much with the people of Iran at this time. And of course, the Iranian, they're going through it even more than any of us. And um, just a quick note, again, today it's, I, I say the date because I know people listen to the show on different days, September 21st at 3 p.m., I was just informed that if you are wanting to go to the uh, protest gathering at the federal building tonight at 7 p.m., at 3 p.m. at Super Irvine in the city of Irvine, um, they are having two free buses there to take people to the protests if they are interested. So if you're in the Orange County area, um, meet at 3 p.m. at Super Irvine uh, to go to uh, the protests at the federal building. Um, it's just, you know, there's so much to say and so much I probably can't even get to uh, on a program like this and the time I have. Uh, but my heart has been very heavy seeing the news last week of what happened to Mahsa was heartbreaking. Um, and, and seeing people posting about her and hoping she was going to be okay and then seeing that she had um, had passed was very saddening but very angering of course as well and you can see that and understandably it's brought up a lot of feelings for people heartbreak sadness but also a lot of anger Um, and so seeing the outpouring of people's emotions about her and what's going on has been both moving inspiring humbling heartbreaking so many things Uh, and then of course it's sparked again the anger of many people within Iran of course around the world but especially those who are within Iran experiencing this. And as a man, I can never understand what it's like to be a woman, period, but of course to be a woman experiencing any kind of uh, oppression and to the degree that's happening in Iran, where it's just basic human rights of freedom of uh, expression, of expressing yourself and what you wear, what you dress, is not even granted to the women of Iran. And of course, we're seeing if you're paying any attention, there's so many videos coming out of protests and things that are happening in Iran. And of course, this is quite limited because we've heard there are internet restrictions and different types of restrictions that are being placed by the government in the country. Um, So we're even seeing just a small amount of what's going on. But the videos have been 
just, uh, I mean, so many things. Um, yesterday I found myself in tears many times, especially a video maybe many of you have seen of a woman in white and she's dancing and spinning and then she throws her hijab into the fire. And the freedom in how she was dancing, how free she was in her spinning was so powerful because you consider how symbolic that was in a country where she is not free or they're now fighting even more for that freedom. There was something so beautiful in that how free she was dancing and, and expressing and throwing this this symbol of oppression when it's made mandatory to throw that into the fire. So uh, it, it's just inspiring the bravery, the courage of these individuals. And of course, even that gives me mixed feelings because you see those things, you're inspired, you're moved, um, but you worry as well because of what has already been happening and the backlash from authorities there. Uh, to those individuals. And, and this is a very challenging thing. You know, these these types of issues are so complex, complicated. There's never going to be simple answers, simple thoughts, simple solutions to them. Because I, I hear mixed, so many things from different people. Um, again, it brings up so many feelings for everyone who is Iranian and even others. You've seen people that are not Iranian expressing their outrage and their support uh, for the people. Um, but it's very easy at times when we're far away to say, okay, well, just why don't they use this as the, as the opportunity to make a revolution or to make a change? And of course, that desire, I completely understand. Iranians, most of them since uh, 43, four years ago, have been wanting things to, to change. So we're looking for that opportunity. And even in my life and in being not as immersed in the Iranian community when I was younger as well, but I've heard it so many times that this is going to be the time that it's happening now and so people are wanting that i also think it's so easy to say from far away for a revolution to happen but very different when you're the one that has to sacrifice yourself or sacrifice your children so it's not to say they there shouldn't be protests or they shouldn't be doing these things but i think it's so complicated when we're outside trying to say what should be happening inside uh, to a country or that people should be doing something you know ask yourself for yourself, would you put yourself in the line of danger or would you be okay if you're a parent sending your child in the line of danger? And obviously it could bring up a lot of feelings. It's not it's not um, an easy one to, to grapple with or to come to some conclusion. But I've just been uh, very captured and captivated seeing what people are, are doing. You can feel the pent-up anger of those people there. Um, and I also don't want to lose sight of the, the victims here. And, and Massa, I mean, he was, what was done to her 22 years old is just so heartbreaking seeing her family and just how they, of course, we can only imagine the pain and the grief they feel. But just what happened to her was so unjust. And we also know that although not everyone is killed the way she was, but there's so much harassment and there's so much negative experiences that people have. So although... She is unique in her, what her experience was, as unique as an individual as everyone is. And so we cherish and value her and honor her. And what happened to her, we recognize that she also represents so many other people, so many other women who have experienced similar things in the past or continue to live in that fear as well now and going forward, which is what is trying to be changed. So, um, 
yeah, it's just been a very, very heavy uh, couple of uh, a week or so since first heard the news that she was uh, in a coma in that situation. And as a therapist, most of my, my clients are Iranian, not all, but most. And almost every one of them has brought this up in some way because it's just so much on people's hearts and minds and affects us and we care. And because we care, it's hard to see, but it makes it so we want to, to do something. Um, I'm very much in favor of peaceful, especially when you're outside, peacefully protesting, being the voice of those who can't express their voice. And so um, if you are wherever you are, there's lots of protests and things happening. And I hope people will be safe and protest. But we have to represent the voice of those who are voiceless or whose voices are not able to be heard um, and, and it just brings up so many issues you know related to the book and I don't want to I don't know if it seems like trivializing going back to the book when I'm talking about such heavy topics but the ways that humans can justify certain things that are just so horrible and horrific and the worst things we can possibly do but using types of ideologies and thinkings and our mental gymnastics that we are capable of so this is where human intelligence can be human stupidity, um, we are able to justify and think we're doing something so right. So we see people getting killed, killing your own people, uh, taking away their rights, hurting them in very direct, clear ways, but somehow thinking you have this authority, but also a moral authority that makes what you're doing not only okay, but right when you're doing the, the worst, worst things and hurting people. And so it's another example of how human intelligence doesn't protect us from human stupidity or human cruelty and the horrible things we are capable of. So we're seeing some of the best of what people can do and the responses that we're seeing, but we're also seeing some of the worst of what humanity and humans are capable of doing. And so, um, you know, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to discuss, but I felt it was impossible to ignore what's going on, what it's on everyone's hearts and minds right now. It's hard to know what to even hope for. I wish for the best for the people of Iran, and I don't know what, how that even comes about or what that looks like, but wishing for the best for them. Watching the videos of what they have done inspires me and, and moves me, humbles me, realizes, you know, you see what real courage and bravery looks like, and you realize uh, the things you go through, the things you worry about can seem so trivial when you consider what people are going through and then what they're willing to sacrifice and do uh, in the face of danger and threats and these types of things is quite remarkable. So I think uh, we've seen human stupidity and human immorality, but we're also seeing human brilliance and the beautiful side of what we are capable of as well. And I hope uh, we can continue to come together with love and unity in the right spirit to, to bring about a positive change. And really, I want to just leave it at that at this point. I know maybe in some callers, you might want to call in. I might be aware of what we discuss or how we discuss the, the issue, but just wanted to share some thoughts about what's happening. Our thoughts, prayers, and also our actions are with the people of Iran wishing for um, the best. And to all of those who have sacrificed already, um, we obviously are forever grateful and in debt and hope there aren't more sacrifices that have to come. I don't know what the path forward is, but I hope it's the best one for the people of Iran. Let's go to a commercial break.
We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller now. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello? Hello? Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. Hi. Uh, good afternoon. Good How afternoon. are you? Good. Thank you. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Good. Um, yeah. So, um, I'll I'd like to introduce myself. I am Sina. I'm calling from Dubai. Okay. And uh, I was going to ask you about some educational advice. Okay, that sounds good. Go right ahead. So, um, I've been interested in psychology for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, I'm in high school, and I'm planning to study psychiatry. And I was hoping that you could explain to me how you um, study psychology and the path I should take to become like you. Well... That's, I mean, in a way, sounds very nice. Uh, I, I appreciate that. Although I don't want you to become like me, I want you to become like you in the best way that that means you become you. So um, I can share with you my experience and and some thoughts on that. But definitely want to hear about you and your experience and what what interests you in psychology and what you'd like to do um, to to see what's your path. Because um, I wouldn't want you to take my path not because it was bad, but because it might not be the right one. For you as we are all you know unique and have different things we want to do different things we're trying to experience so yeah i mean i was interested in psychology from a young age but first i was actually pre-med myself and then when i took a psychology class i found it very interesting and then went down that path and you know got my bachelor's and then master's and, and phd in, in clinical psychology and then and then was practicing but as i mentioned i don't mind telling you more that was a very general type of a thing but hearing more about you, what your interests are and what you'd like to do so that we can try to start figuring out your path towards whatever it is uh, or wherever it is that you want to get to. Okay, so um, yeah, like you uh, from a young age, I was really interested in uh, psychology, mm -hmm. specifically uh, psychopathology, mental disorders, mm -hmm. uh, such as learning disorders and depression, addiction. Uh -huh. um, I started uh, learning psychology in school in uh, the British system and from there I've been really getting interested about these kind of things and my dad who listens to your, your father's show he told me about you mm -hmm. and I, I have listened to a few of your uh, podcasts and I was hoping yeah, that you would be really well knowledge on this and give me your experience okay. on um psychology sure um, so you said you're in, you've been interested in um, psychology for a while and you like psychopathology and understanding the different disorders and so that's good to have that interest and the curiosity uh, about the topic or field we want to go into what is it you think you'd like to do or what do you see yourself doing um, I always really liked helping people mm -hmm. so um, like psychiatry has been really interesting to me and uh Personally, um, so at a young age, I had um, pretty uh, bad ADHD, and then um, when I found out what that was, I started getting really interested into like why I'm like this, the reasons are, and then I started taking medication, and I wanted to understand everything, how it works, 
you know, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And was the medication helpful for you? Um, the medication, um, it was good and bad. There was bad, like, uh, Aspartame Concerta. Uh huh. For the past about six years now. Um, yeah, it helped, but it also made me feel different, not like myself. And mm. that's also really interesting to me why it does yeah. that. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, yeah. So I'm also really interested in medicine. Okay. Um, yeah, and I, I'm, I'm glad you shared that. Most, you know, a lot of things, it's not all good or all bad, or even if it's helping us in some way. But, you know, there was something very interesting what you said. It made you not feel like yourself in some ways. And this even brings up these philosophical types of questions of what, is, what does that mean to be yourself? You know, so if someone is depressed, is that part of them? Or is the depression getting in the way of them expressing themselves? Is your ADHD something that gets in the way of your life or is that part of who you and who you are and how you think and and there's even some um you know th writers and thinkers who actually see the benefits of things like adhd that let's say for example it helps people be more creative or make more connections between things so even adhd itself is not all good or all bad um but w the way you said that really i think was quite interesting to me because yeah it's like what what does that mean you as a person who are you and and changing that and so when we think of medicine or health and healing usually we're, we're thinking of okay how do we take away the unnecessary suffering and unnecessary pain or the pains we can get in the way of to preserve the person or preserve the body or preserve the brain um, but there are at times these these blurry areas of okay well what's helping and what's not and what's um uh, you know, when are we interfering with actually who the person is, even though we think we're helping? These are some things I find interesting, and it wasn't necessarily what you were necessarily bringing up, but I just wanted to share some of those thoughts with you of, of what you shared and what it brought up for me, some thoughts. Uh, but so your own experience with ADHD, it seems like made you even more interested in wanting to understand it better. I'm wondering if even the part you're saying you didn't like that made you want to understand it better to see, can we make things better in the medicine so that it's even more beneficial and not as harmful. Um, what, what do you think your own experience has done as far as affecting your interest in uh, psychology and psychiatry? So yeah, um, my mixed experience with ADHD medication and therapy like really got me interested into why, why it doesn't work or mm -hmm. it's not the, the most effective. And um, it um, like, it kind of like makes me wanna, cause now I know what it, those treatments are like I want to help people who haven't experienced that to have a better and like they're able to understand these treatments more so mm -hmm. they don't have to kind of go through a bit of suffering and trying different things and all the struggles that comes with taking lots of different medications and treatments and yeah. therapies yeah D did you have to take a lot of different medications or did you start on Concerta and that was the one you stuck with Oh, I started with Stratera. I think mm -hmm. it's a monomese oxidase inhibitor, something like that. Yeah, and I think Stratera is not uh, a stimulant, if, I, if I'm it's not mistaken. Antidepressant, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's, all, it's used for ADHD. You know, I would have to, but I think it's it's a non-stimulant as opposed to things like Ritalin, which is a stimulant that's used mm -hmm. for ADHD. Yeah. So yeah, that would that had horrible side effects. Mm -hmm. Really physical, um, really bad stomach aches. Could like it just made your head hurt terrible <laughs> mm -hmm. and then um, I started on Concerta about six years ago 
and I was on and off because one thing about Concerta, I've noticed um, because um, I also had a kind of a weird like interest in like how um, drugs work, like both like like psych- psychoactive drugs, mm-hmm. and um, I saw a documentary about Nazi Germany that where they used. I think it was an amphetamine, which is using Adderall, how it makes you less empathetic. Hmm. And it's the exact same with Concerta. So that's one of the biggest struggles I faced. Like, you could not talk to people at all. Like, you could, um, it was really weird talking to people, like almost robotic. Hmm. That made me really interested, like, in it. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that is interesting. Um, and that's, you know, this is again getting back to what does that mean to be human and what parts, you know, are you and what parts you don't want to lose and that empathic human connecting side, you felt like you were losing some of that, although interestingly enough, you could have the awareness of it. You're aware that you weren't feeling some things that you used to feel rather than just thinking it was good or right. Um, and, you know, this is something I think psychiatry obviously has helped millions and millions of people over the years. But we also do see that there's a lot of shortcomings in medications and what they are, are doing for a lot of people. Things like antidepressants, uh, again, helped millions of people. But even though we call them antidepressants, it's not just something that people take and their depression gets better. A lot of people don't. Uh, and then, you know, we're look, talking about and looking at other types of treatments. I've even talked about them on some of my recent shows because I really don't think First of all, I don't think people are all dealing with the same thing. And then related to that, there's not really one magic pill or one medication that helps everybody, even with dealing with a certain or similar type of issue. So I think, uh, actually, I was talking before the show to uh, Batis here in the studio about even trying to understand the brain. And we thought with the, the advancements in neuroimaging, we were going to understand the brain in a short amount of time. And that hasn't been true. And related to that, we thought we're going to understand all the, the mental illnesses and come up with these treatments so you know, quickly or really relatively quickly. And that hasn't been the case because both seem to be incredibly complex. So um, I think, you know, it could be great. There's a lot of work that needs to be done in advancing all fields, of course, but psychiatry in particular, that the medications or haven't been a lot of breakthroughs in mainstream pharmacological types of treatments, um, at least from my, my understanding of it. So would your desire be more on the research side or more on the practical clinical side? Um, it's always been like a small dream of mine to make an ADHD drug that doesn't, that doesn't have these difficult side effects. Okay. However, I would like to be in a more practical clinical setting. Yeah, no. so, yeah. yeah, you know, one thing we always, it's interesting, you know, this happens a lot with uh, people who go into psychology, even when, you know, you go on interviews and things going for grad school. And, you know, it's like, what what makes you interested in it? Because, and, and oftentimes people will have awareness of the things they've went through, but we always have to be mindful of, am I going into something because of something within myself, or is it really something I'm trying to understand? And it could be some of both. Usually it is some of both. So that's something to reflect on for yourself is that, is it just because of this problem, not just because, but a lot of it, this problem you had and you're trying to figure it out, or, you know, is it, it's inspired you to want to understand these things better. So that's something for you to reflect on as you, you know, keep going. And we're having this conversation as if you have to know everything you're going to do. Even I'm asking you questions about the future. A lot of it's just for you to think about it and to consider what you want to do, but a lot of your path, you're going to figure out as you keep going, you know? So it's not like you're gonna figure out every step of the path now. You might 
think of the directions you want to go towards. And as you walking in, you start walking in those directions, you will likely find different pathways within that. So I don't want you to also feel this pressure like you need to know exactly what you want to do within these fields and exactly what you're going to study or whether you're a researcher or a clinician. A lot of those things you can figure out. I'm just curious to get a sense of your thinking and and what you've thought about these things. Um, now, I've asked you some questions. I also want to make sure since you called in, are there some more questions you have for me that we can explore together? Okay. Um, thank you for that. Actually, it's leaving to here, not to like always knowing what to do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I was going to ask about how do you... Um, achieve this career path of becoming a psychiatrist well as well so as, as i'm not uh, let me first make clear i'm a i'm a clinical psychologist psychologist i'm oh, not yeah. a psychiatrist and so the paths are actually although they're both obviously mental health related are quite different because to become a psychiatrist you have to go to medical school and become a medical doctor and then do your residency in psychiatry and depends on where you go to school i'm sure the paths are similar but i know for example here in the united states uh you know in your undergraduate your bachelor's degree you're gonna have to make sure you take a lot of science courses that are prerequisites for medical school so you don't have to be like a biology major necessarily or uh, have a specific major but you have to make sure you take a lot of these classes which include biology physics uh, chemistry and, and some others and then you go to medical school which here in the United States is four years and then during medical school you do boards and different things I, I definitely didn't do medical school so I don't know the details of it but then when you're applying for residency after medical school you would want to do psychiatry which I'm not sure if it's four years five years I forget or three years don't quote me on that but a few more years and then you know you you, you go into that but maybe that's not what your question is when you're asking me how to get into it, but that's just some things about the the educational pathway. But let me know what your questions, if they're they're different than that. Yeah. So the main issue is, um, so I, I live in Dubai, and most of the schools here are British system schools. Uh huh. And I'm a bit like afraid of the transition because uh, recently, me and my family, so we're originally Iranian. Mm hmm. We got a green card recently, and we really want to take this advantage and like for me to go to study in the U.S. Okay. And I don't know how the transition works. Okay. And did you say you were sixteen? Yeah, I was okay. sixteen. Yeah. When you say the transition, I mean I can get it. Look, moving continents, countries, it's a big deal, so it's not easy. But I'm trying to get what are the things you're concerned about coming to if you were to come to the United States, going to school here. Um, like actually like applying for universities and which mm -hmm. universities to go to and what courses and like where do you find this information? Yeah, I mean obviously those are questions that first of all it's a lot of questions and a lot of them you won't need to know immediately anyway but I also won't have the answers to a lot of them but uh, I mean I could feel for me there's this anxiety of not getting it wrong of messing it up um, you know if you come here soon um, whenever that might be in the next, let's say, year or so. You might still even be in high school. And what you'll want to do is get in touch with people who are advisors when it comes to these types of things, connect with people in the medical field in whatever ways that you can to ask them. Um, the good thing about the United States, the educational system is it's 
less than, let's say, even I think in England, but in some other countries where you have to know and be on a path from like 16 or something, it's not really like that. You know, I was uh, in college when I switched uh, from medicine to psychology early on, but I could have done it later as much later as well. So I don't want you to feel like there's this crazy pressure that when you come here, you have to make the exact right steps from the beginning. Um, you know, you, you like I was mentioning, you have to get a lot of science courses if you want to go into medicine eventually. Some people even go back and take those science classes too. So again, there isn't this pressure that you have to do them exactly at a certain time. But if you know that's your path, it's probably better to, to take them. Um, but then there's always college counselors and things at your school that will, you, that will help guide you. They can be helpful, but you also will want to look up things and reach out to people outside of your um, school to get more information about what you need to do to go to medical school. And especially in this regard, you really need to, of course, you focus on the whole thing, but you have to figure out the next step. So when you're starting, let's say, applying to colleges, you don't need to worry about psychiatry residency, you know, nine years or whatever down the line. Um, that's something that you'll figure out when you get there. So you want to first focus on college and then going to med school and preparing yourself for that, which includes taking the classes, taking a test that's called the MCAT and other things, I'm sure, as well, and then doing the application. So, you know, you need to focus on that that next step. My, my experience in talking to you is there's a slight anxiety. We all have anxiety, but there's an anxiety you have of trying to figure it all out or make sure you get it all right, which on one hand is good in that it shows that you care, but also it can make you put more pressure or too much pressure on yourself or on the situation that you have to have all the answers before you even start, which you, you won't have. So I, I'm, I'm glad you're even calling me to try to get some of my insight, the specifics of med school. I don't have that much uh, experience and knowledge to give you the type of guidance you likely will need, but you'll also need to get this knowledge over time. So don't feel like uh, if you don't know it all, you're not okay, or you're on the wrong path, or you're already behind. That won't be, won't be the case. Um, do you know when you would likely move if you were to move to the U.S.? Uh, probably in two years time. Okay. So, I mean, that would be when you'd be finishing high school, you might be entering college. Those are things you can, or, you know, start exploring soon about what kind of colleges you can go to. In the United States, we also have, you know, sometimes even people call their universities like going to college, but we have like colleges, you know, like a community college or sometimes they're called junior colleges that then you can from there transfer to universities. That's even the path that I did. Um, so, you know, those paths are available as well because, you know, sometimes applying from four universities from out of the country, there could be some challenges. Doesn't mean you can't. Many people are foreign students and they do things. So you can start looking at those types of things. Even at the school you are at in Dubai, likely they'll have some idea of these things. So you can ask them about what's possible, what's available. Um, but again, I hear myself talking a lot. I'm not sure if even what I'm sharing is going to be useful for you. So I, I'm wondering if there are any questions you have before we wrap up that I make sure we get to. Um, no, actually, that, that was actually really uh, relieving to hear. Because mm -hmm. um, um, my school concerts didn't help. They just made it worse, to be honest. Um, <laughs> How do they make it worse? Yeah. They told me, okay, so you have to pick your subjects now. If you uh -huh. don't pick your subjects correctly, you are going to go on the wrong path. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, yeah, and and look, yeah, really they obviously have knowledge I don't have too. So I mean, I I wouldn't I don't know if everything they're saying is not true, and I don't want you to to freak out or to worry too much or to think that if you, um, you know, you know, take one wrong class, you won't be able to get in. But it, it's important to talk to them. I don't know if they meant that's going to make it easier for you to get it to a university from Dubai if you end up applying while you're still there and. You know, that is a different type of process than someone applying here. So there are some things to, to consider. So I would talk to them, but yeah, maybe they were putting a little bit too much pressure on you to, to figure it all out immediately. And that could be a little bit scary. Um, in the United States, like I would say one of the experiences I even had myself is that there are, you know, it's not like you have to get it right from the beginning or you lose your chance completely. You, you kind of have second chances or possibilities so i don't want you to feel i get the sense you're going to care enough so i'm not worried about you not caring enough but my concern is if you care or worry too much and then that kind of uh, you know freezes you in place or makes you too afraid to take some steps so um yeah you know keep doing the things you can to to talk to people i appreciate you even calling me trying to understand even if you can connect to people who are in the medical field in the united states even better because they will have that that knowledge that I don't have and they can tell you some things that might help you. You can even look up things like international students. Um, you wouldn't be an international medical student yet. There are some people that come from, let's say, another country straight to medical school here and that's a whole process of its own. But yours would be a little bit different from that because you'd be starting from college, it seems like, from what you're saying. So, uh, you know, hopefully some of what we shared together will give you some, some insight, some calm and, and some direction. But, you know, you're not going to know this whole path today, and that's okay. It's important to make sure you figure out the next steps of the path, not that, okay, how do I worry about medical school or residency yet? How do I set myself up for undergraduate, you know, bachelor's degree, and to go on the right path towards medical school? But, but good luck with all of that, and I, I appreciate you calling in and, and hope it all goes well. All right, well, uh, thank you so much. Um, definitely need more people like you. Uh, in my life, uh, that was really helpful. You're very, that was very kind, very sweet of you. I, I'm glad I got to talk to you. And, you know, if I could tell you anything, it would be that you're probably more okay than you think you are. Because I hear it in your voice and in working with so many people that we think we've, we've already got it wrong or we're not going to know. You're probably okay. You know, keep doing what you can to try to understand what you need to do better. But, but don't worry, you haven't, you, nothing you're going to do today is going to make it so you can't go to medical school. You know, there's nothing that's going to make or break it right now. So do the right things you can to keep going towards that. But don't worry too much about anything that's happening in this moment that you lost the opportunity or, or losing that opportunity. Okay. Okay. Well, Best of luck you to so you. Much. And yeah, if you want to call back some later time, please do. We can, you know, follow up on this. Thank you. All, All right. right. Take care of yourself. Have a good, Have a good day. day. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In this segment, I wanted to talk about power um, from a psychological perspective or mindset and, and how it affects us as individuals and, of course, on a larger scale, but also how to think about power and what that means. Um, I, I didn't come up with like a specific definition of power to, to begin this discussion, but just some the concept of having the ability to control or influence others or make decisions that affect others. That's that's what I mean by power in the sense that, of course, 
clear examples of that are things like individuals with political power or holding office, presidents, prime ministers, individuals of that sort also conclude authorities like police and uh, and things like of that nature. So we need people to have responsibility and authority in some ways. So uh, overall, I believe in making things more egalitarian, less unequal, more democratic, where everyone has a voice and a choice and can have their input heard. So let's begin there. To me, that's very important. And uh, the United States was founded on some very wonderful principles, not always enacted, but this concept of separation of powers, balancing of powers, checks and balances are really, really important to make sure that no one individual, no one group has too much power. But so coming back to this notion that we at times need to put concentrate certain types of power or decision making in certain ways. So for example, when you go on a plane, you can't have everyone have equal say in how the play is being pain, plane is being flown. You need a pilot and a co-pilot and of course they coordinate with others that support them to make sure we get to our destination safely. We can't have every hand in the cockpit pulling on the levers and things saying, well, it's a democratic process. Everyone gets to decide equally what we're going to do. So there are some ways that we we need to, to do that, to have someone have that type of power. Or even, let's say in education, you have a teacher who has some level of the power and authority of the classroom. Um, but a few things. One is that there can be different degrees of that power. So you can have a teacher that no matter what they say, they are right, and no one can challenge them in any way. There's no uh, place to complain to, nothing to do. Or you can have a teacher that takes the input of the students, whether we're talking about kids or adults as students, um, that there are checks and balances of the teachers so that they can make sure if they're doing something wrong or people think they're doing something wrong, they can file a complaint that is then transparent and things can happen. So there's different ways we can handle that. But what's important for me is when we look at these power types of structures or when people are given some kind of power, there's some very important things to keep in mind. One is the amount of power that we give to someone. So we've had things like absolute monarchs in history or even still that really are the ultimate. No one can challenge or question even one individual, sometimes maybe more than one. And that to me is always a problem. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's just not possible when you give power to an individual where there are no consequences, no accountability, no responsibility, no um, recourse for others to challenge them in any way. It brings out the worst in people, anyone, me, you, whoever you are. When we give too much power to someone, it doesn't serve them well. It's a, a drug, a toxic one that makes us act in worse ways. Even when we are anonymous and know that what we do won't be seen or they won't know we're doing it, we do worse things. And there's a lot of research showing this both in public settings and naturalistic type of settings, but also in research that if you're wearing a face covering of some kind, or if you're wearing something that doesn't let people know who you are, or you're in the dark, you might shock someone more than you would if you know that people can see you. Or an interesting kind of study that, that shows this in a different way was they would... Um, 
over a period of time, get in front of cars that were convertibles. And then when the light would turn green, this was done, you know, obviously out in the field on the streets, when the light would turn green, they would not go and they would see how long it would take for the person to honk saying like, you know, hey, go. And they found that if the person's top was up on the convertible, so they're more concealed, they would honk more quickly than if their top was down, meaning they were more exposed. Now, maybe we could also think if the top is down, they're more relaxed or other things are going on. But it can make sense to think that something is there where when we are exposed, we are less likely to take some action that might not look good or something that looks a little bit bad or has some, you know, makes a noise or things like that. So when we are uh, either anonymous or when there's no consequences, it brings out the worst in us. So everyone needs to have consequences. No one is above the law. No one is above other people. We have to be very aware of how power is distributed. It is just inevitable that when we give power to the f to few people and too much to few people, it turns into a disaster where only few people are okay and the rest are suffering. Something we've seen throughout human history and continue to see that when we move to different types of societies, often it was many people working and working horribly and in really bad situations and without wealth and without um, basic human rights and dignity. And some very few people were the elite who got to enjoy it. So this is what I mean by I'm very much in favor of more egalitarianism, meaning that there's less inequality and things are distributed more equally in general, both resources, but also power is one of those resources, more of a social resource, but that one as well. The other thing that is so important for me when we look at something like power or authority is that as a society and as individuals, so as a society, we create these types of structures, but as individuals, we are aware that power should be seen as something that is utilized in service of others, not in service of ourselves. So what does that mean? In general, when we think of people who are powers, monarchs, they get to just be treated, they have this power and authority and they get treated amazingly well. They don't have to work or have certain consequences that other mere mortals and humans have. They don't have to worry about certain things that everyone has to worry about. They get the best of everything and they get praised and celebrated by others. And actually this is in some ways topical because uh, maybe now it was two weeks ago, Queen Elizabeth in England had died and I don't wish death or uh, think that the death of anyone is meaningless, but I do think that the ways we've elevated, for example, a royal family, whatever that means, it's just something we've kind of made up, right? Um, that their lives are more important than other people. I don't think that is a good thing. So uh, don't wish anything bad upon, upon any of them, but I don't think we should be elevating a family or some individuals some, to some kind of exalted status. This is a relic from the past, which was an unhealthy relic from the past that I think we should be doing away with, of putting people's lives as so much more superior and significant to others. Uh, even with what's ha been happening, I've seen posts, and this thought came to my own mind of, uh, Maso Amini was killed at the age of 22 by for something like showing her hair and not wear improper hijab. Uh, and that's getting some more attention now, thankfully, but so much attention was given to uh, a woman in her 90s who died of natural causes and this, you know, uh, some sadness or tragedy there. And so 
what does that mean about us as a society and as about people when that's the way our priorities are? We're putting significance on certain things and insignificance or not enough significance on others. So usually when we think of power and even what makes people want to be powerful is because it's going to be beneficial to them. And that's unfortunately when we create these types of structures, it brings about the wrong people wanting that type of power and authority. Because if it's like, oh, how powerful, I can do whatever I want, and people will love me, and I can do no wrong, because even if I make a mistake, somehow it's still right, and no one can even question me. This is going to bring out the most narcissistic, megalomaniacs, people who are psychopaths, even who don't care about others, who just want to care about themselves, and we give them then the responsibility to take care of everyone else. It's really uh, quite crazy. It's like saying the person you're going to bring to babysit your kids a whole group of 20 kids is a person who doesn't even care if anyone else gets fed. So they're just sitting in their house making sure they get fed and your babies are, you know, not getting changed, fed, played with or anything. That's kind of what we do in society when we attract this type of person. It's the person that cares the least about other people that we give the power, the most power to take care of everyone else. It really is very paradoxical. People are drawn to the power for the wrong reasons for the selfish type of power rather than the more genuine to me type of power or authority where it's in the service of others it's in the service of some kind of greater good or some cause the pilot is not i'm the pilot everyone look at me give me attention make me feel good the pilot hopefully will have the mindset of i have a responsibility to make sure everyone in this plane lands safely and this plane lands safely and that's my responsibility, not my power for my selfish benefit, my power and responsibility to these people for something more important, some greater good. And so, unfortunately, what we've always had and still have is power structures that it becomes about the person. When you have been given this power, you get so much with it that people are drawn to it that are not the right types of people. Now, I'd like to continue this this discussion, this uh, conversation because it's related to, of course, what's happening in Iran. It's happening around the world in, in different ways. But then when power gets into the wrong hands, this is what happens. But when we have power structures that make it that the wrong hands will want that power, it's more likely that it happens. So both the structure is problematic, but then this gets exacerbated by the wrong people wanting that power, that type of power. So let's go to a commercial break and I'll continue the, some of my thoughts on power and how we can make it different or think about it in a different way. All right, we'll be right back. Welcome back. So as I was discussing in the last segment about some thoughts on on power, authority, and how as a society and individually we can think about these things. So very clearly to me it's important that we don't concentrate too much power in the hands of few, and when you do, Whatever you do with that power has to be with checks, balances, accountability, that no one is above the law, that no one is immune to being uh, evaluated or to have their actions be under scrutiny. And actually, when you're given more responsibility, there should be more scrutiny under that. But sometimes we see the opposite, then how dare you question the, the, the king, the CEO, the whoever it is that's in power, but really it should be the opposite. And so this relates to this type of mindset or paradigm shift that I think is so important uh, that some of course people already hold that power is about 
serving others or doing something with that power rather than it's for me. And so it's so difficult because psychologically, when we're given power and when we feel like we have that authority, when we feel like we um, don't have accountability and we can do whatever we want, it's like a drug. It is going to corrupt us if we don't, if we're not mindful of it, if we're not aware of it. You might think I'm a good person. I would never do these things that other people have done when they've gotten power. But if you get it, we see that humans inevitably, when we don't have that sense of accountability, even, a, you know, if you can say a basis of human morality, um, Michael Tomasello has done a lot of research on, on the evolution of human morality and looking at some of our primate cousins and relatives and seeing how we can try to understand the the evolution of human morality. And we see that a lot of it has to do with things like accountability, like joint intentionality. We are trying to uh, hunt together and to hunt together, which benefits both of us. We have to work together. I have to be able to think how you think, but there's very much this sense of accountability and doing the right thing with, for each other. And so there could be some even basis of human morality that comes from that. And so if we then lose that sense that I have to be accountable or I have to be careful what I do, we then are going to care less about what we do. And it brings out uh, worse sides of us where we don't mind harming and hurting others because there's no consequence for us. So we actually benefit from the consequence. So power corrupts us. And I might even touch on as parents, have to, you have to be mindful of that. So you have to be aware when someone gives you some position of power, you get some kind of, and I'm not just talking about you're the president of the United States, even small types of power, that being aware of how am I wielding that power? Am I wielding it for myself or in the service of others? And that to me is really critical because if you're not careful, you're going to start to let that power get to your head in negative ways. So how does this look like when we think of power as for me versus power for others? So let's say a teacher, I already brought up that example. The teacher can feel like, ha, huh. again, they might not even consciously, consciously be aware of this, but here I am, I'm the teacher, I can do whatever I want, these kids are all under my control, I can punish them, I can, you know, create the curriculum and grading, I can do whatever I want, if I don't like a student, I can dock them points, I can do all these unfair things because I have the power, I'm the one who is in control, and that feels quite good. By the way, another... Uh, aspect of this, I just mentioned control, a big part of human anxiety or what we experience is not having control of so many things, which no matter what we do, we we'll, won't have control of many factors, but the more control we have, the better we feel. So we like having control. So if you're in, let's say this classroom that I'm describing and you have control over everything, it feels a lot better or more calming than when you don't or when you relinquish some of that control. But so a teacher can feel like this is great. I have the most attention. I have the eyes on me. I can control what happens. No, we're staying two minutes later. We're doing this. We're doing that. Whatever it is, it can feel really good. And that's about the teacher. They feel good. I feel good with this. I get attention. I get control. I get to uh, hurt people if I want to. And there's no consequences. But we can think in a other end of the spectrum, the ideal that I'm trying to promote here of thinking of your power and authority, that the best way of looking at it is serving others. We could think a teacher is my responsibility is to teach this class. And I have the authority to run this class. 
And actually, I also want to make it clear when I say this, it doesn't mean if you don't want the power, that means as a teacher, you let anything happen and there's no boundaries and structure and anything like that. That actually wouldn't be serving the kids. And this is where we, we get into this uh, very intricate part of the balance is how do I utilize my power or authority in this classroom to best benefit these children and their education and also morally and psychologically in all other ways. But I've been given this responsibility. So if we think of power as responsibility, uh, I think that's a line from Superman, like with great power comes great responsibility. But nonetheless, I think the concept is a very good one that my power isn't something for me. It's something I need to now utilize to help others. So the teacher thinks, how do I create the best structure for them? Not because it feels good to me to be in control of the rules and control of what happens, but what's the best structure for these children to take care of them and to help them learn? What is the best way to push them academically, not to punish them, not because it feels good to, to see that they're suffering and I can relax, but at, because I want them to learn, because I think that is good for them. The greater good here is their education. So how do I push them in this positive way? How do I even create consequences for behavior potentially that might promote the best order in this classroom for all of them? And even for those individuals to experience genuine consequences for what they do. So they might learn from those things that they're doing. So we can see it's a very different experience from this is for me. It feels good to me. Everything the teachers recognizing in their responsibility or what they're trying to think of is how does it benefit these children? I have a responsibility to take care of these children. And then so if you're someone who's holding political power in some way, it's not this I get to be the president, the senator, the prime minister and look at me and give me this attention and everyone tell me how great I am and it's so prestigious. It's okay, I've been a, given a responsibility to govern in some way, whatever your role is. It's actually a responsibility, a big one, which should be the focus of that responsibility rather than the reward or the sense that I've been given some type of title. And so I think that's why we have to be aware of how we even create these structures. I have some mindset that people who are given political power should actually not be wealthy. Often the salary for those positions are high, but not only that, usually it takes wealth, especially in the United States, to get elected. And I think that's very, very problematic. And it's a very clear, um, corrupt part of our political system here in the United States, and of course, a lot of countries, that it takes money to get elected or with money you can get elected. So again, this is going to draw the wrong types of people. It doesn't bring the person who genuinely wants to help others and come up with laws and ways of governing that will help the most people. It's someone who wants the power. They want to feel good. They want to get the benefits of that position. So if we can shift from the mindset of power is for me versus power is for me to serve, we have a very different mindset. And I mentioned parenting, so I'll give some um, quick thoughts on that. Something I've talked about before, because when we look at the parent-child relationship, it's a very imbalanced relationships in lots of ways and some of them very good, but some of them could open up the possibilities for bad. So especially when your child is a baby and very young, it's almost purely one-sided. You take care of them. You have ultimate responsibility to them and they owe nothing to you. A baby is not supposed to do something for their parents. They're just a baby and they need to be taken care of. So it's very imbalanced. But even from that age, and especially as they get older, another 
way that things are very imbalanced is the power. As the parent, you're physically much bigger, intellectually more advanced. Uh, you have all the power and authority of determining everything that's going on in the home. The child can do very little other than resist and revolt sometimes, but they have much less influence on that. So if we look at the setup, the setup of being a parent is one that has lots of things, but one of them is that it creates this huge power type of vacuum, or I should say power dynamic, where you have so much power in the hands of the parents. And so this is why I think parents have to be very mindful of this, that we have to be aware that even though we think, oh, it's my child, of course, I'm not going to abuse the power, but our tendency is to go towards abusing the power because who's, especially when you're in the home, who's going to question your authority? You can do whatever you want, get away with things. There's really no types of checks and balances. Sometimes parents together, hopefully will do that. But again, they can even be on the same page. And so we can see it's very much set up towards a parent taking advantage of that pattern of that power even i say you have to be mindful as a parent to not become a dictator because it's very easy to be a dictator in your own home you can order whoever you want to do whatever they want make the rules break the rules whatever you want to do no one can do anything about it so you have to be very mindful of this and i've seen it in therapy of what parents have done to their kids even in working with parents seeing these feelings bubble up it's understandable that it's so difficult raising a child that at times you're going to turn towards this. But so we want to be very mindful of this way that the power goes to our head. And especially we can feel powerless in other aspects of our life. And then you come home and you have this ultimate power. It feels good to take control, to order things around or, you know, think that you can just have everything go your way. It can feel quite comforting to, to do that. And we have to uh, fight against that or resist going towards that type of comfort. And so coming back to this general theme of what's going on in the world and what's going on in Iran, I think it's very clear, of course, if you ask people, they'll say that they're using their power for the good and it has some kind of uh, religious value to them. But we can see very clearly that the people who are in power want the power for themselves more than anything. And this is, again, a breeding ground for corruption. We see it around the world. And it's not that I'd say that uh, other governments are not corrupt in the same way they definitely are, but we see something very ugly happening there and something that we want to be mindful of. So for me, this is a big, big concept of what does power mean? How do we as individuals think about our personal power in different situations, in different relationships? How do we, in a more cultural and societal type of way, divide power or who do we give power to? And what are the incentives to having power? Because often we create incentives for power that are going to draw the worst types of people to have that power. It's like you're giving the worst kind of weapon to the person who wants to kill the most people if we do it in that way. So we have to be very mindful of giving power that is supposed to help people the most to the people that want to help people the least, which is often what we are doing. So as a society, how do we think about these things and very very importantly that no one should have unchecked power that just because we think someone is so good or they come to us telling us they're so good or we like to feel it's kind of like this belief in God that someone is perfect so this person comes and we don't need to question them at all we don't have to worry about anything this person ever does because they're so good and moral and they can never do anything bad the truth of the matter is humans we are capable of doing very very bad things and very very good things and each of us is capable of that and even if you only have seen the good of someone, it doesn't mean it's impossible for them to do bad. And especially if you put them in a bad context, they will do bad. 
and giving people ultimate power, giving them unchecked power, giving them absolute power, is putting them in a bad context in the sense that they will do bad things. So it's very comforting for us at times to give power to some people and think that I don't have to worry about things anymore. I don't have to think about it because this perfect authority is going to take care of me. But that's essentially a childhood fallacy and dream. As a baby, you like to have this feeling as a child that my parents are perfect. My parents are so strong and powerful that I never have to worry about anything. You know, sometimes I think about this when a child, if you think about it, they're worried about a monster in their room and they go to their mom and dad. And of course, there's this feeling of comfort we get from them of security. But sometimes the monster you're imagining, if we're being realistic, there's no way your mom and dad could hang with that monster. The monster would tear them apart too. But for some reason, we have this feeling of comfort that we get from them. And that's something we're at times looking for, is this feeling that I'm perfectly safe. It's understandable. And as to our kids, we want to give them that feeling of comfort and safety, which is important. But as adults, we have to realize it doesn't actually exist. There is no perfect safety, perfect comfort. There isn't some perfect authority that if we trust in this person, they're going to always do right and never do wrong. We all have to continue thinking for ourselves and being vigilant of the truth and understanding. And we need to make sure that whoever is given power is not given absolute power because we can't trust them absolutely because they're human beings at the end of the day. And we create power structures that makes things more balanced, that every voice is heard, that everyone has choice in their own life but that we don't think that we can trust someone to fully make all the decisions for us because no one has all the answers and no one is uncorruptible. All right, that brings us to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the last segment, I was talking about power, the ways it corrupts, the ways we can be mindful of how it can corrupt and how we can try to create societies and also individually be mindful of how we use and abuse power and also at the end I was talking about the comforts that we get when we turn over the power to others and that that's something that we are seeking coming from this childlike fantasy and wanting and just a human wanting of feeling safe and feeling secure that it can be so nice to think that there's someone or some group that I can trust so much that I don't have to worry about a thing. And it doesn't mean we can't trust people, but it does mean that we can't just trust people 100% wholeheartedly and think we never have to worry about anything, that we can just trust them blindly in that way. And during the break, um, uh, Batis was here in the studio. We are talking about a few things related to that segment and also uh, the connection between that and even the power of thinking or for someone to think for us that we are dealing with so much uncertainty. One of the biggest challenges humans we face is about uncertainty, unsafety, anxiety, even some existential types of threats that we're going to die, that we won't always be here, death anxiety, which is can be very terrifying and people struggle with in different ways to different degrees. And really to me, something like death anxiety, there's no purely satisfactory answer or an answer that will calm you completely. Of course, religious beliefs can give people some level of calm if they they believe that, if you believe that when you die, 
um, you, you, you know, the afterlife and things you experience. And these are personal beliefs that I'm not going to get into in that sense. But that's a way of it gives a comfort that, okay, when I die, something very good is happening. So I don't have to, to worry about it or to feel bad about that. But I think in general, it's a human challenge. Uh, actually, in the book that I talked about today, if Nietzsche were a narwhal, uh, it was talking about how knowing about our own death, mortality, salience, or death wisdom, as he calls it, it, it can be good and bad. In a lot of ways, it can give us this existential angst and anxiety of worrying about our own death, knowing that we do, in fact, die. Is that a good thing? Again, going back to this human intelligence and is it beneficial or not it's interesting does that make us feel better does that make our lives better does it make us uh, happier uh, it's a bit hard to say um, but we do have this sense that we are going to die and that could be scary and we're looking for answers and so we see this type of relationship where we're looking for answers we feel afraid we feel weak and then there are people that swoop in to fill that void because they're getting something out of it. So we have this kind of symbiotic relationship. So just to simplify it, I'm worried, I'm scared, and then you show up and tell me I have all the answers. You have nothing to be worried about. Everything's going to be okay as long as you listen to me. I have all the answers. I know everything. I know everything. You don't have to worry at all. I can't lie, I got a little bit relaxed just saying that, imagining it to be true, but I know it's not true. That person does not exist. So it's an understandable desire and an understandable type of fantasy that we have, that there is someone that can solve everything and protect us completely, but it is a reality we have to face that is not out there. And so related to that, and what I even was just saying there and kind of character I was embodying is what we see happen throughout the world, throughout history, and even currently, of people who who show up, who likely are intelligent and do have some great ideas, but might present themselves as having all the ideas or all the right ideas. And that if you follow them, you don't have to think or worry anymore. And, and I, I wrote a tweet a little bit ago kind of joking on this that I said, uh, take this advice without thinking about it for yourself. Don't take any advice without thinking about it for yourself. So basically, we never can take someone's advice without evaluating it ourselves. Um, Eric Fromm, Batis mentioned him during the break, uh, in To Have or To Be, he talks about even when you're reading a book, so I read a book every week, and this is something I try to be mindful of, it's not a passive process where I'm just taking in the information from the book. It should be active in the way that I'm thinking about the ideas, challenging them, even seeing what parts I agree with, disagree with, what do I connect it with. In a way, I'm having a conversation with the author, yes, in my head, and hopefully I can't actually hear the author respond, but I should be having a conversation where I'm actively engaged rather than just taking in passively what the author is telling me. And so it could be a different very different experience of reading when you do it that way. It's more challenging because you have to think, you have to question things, you have to be more on alert. Being passive is a lot easier and we often take that easier route because it is simpler for us to do it that way. And so we can't take anyone's advice without thinking about it for ourselves. We can't take uh, anyone's thinking on things without having to evaluate ourselves these ideas. Do they make sense? What do I think about them? What parts do I agree or disagree with and continue thinking about them? 
you know, even myself doing this show, it's something I try to be mindful of. And I do think my presentation tends to be in a sense of I don't have the answers for sure. And I know this 100% and I have all the answers, definitely not, or anything like that. I do try to present my thoughts on things, my opinions on things, some questions even at times to think about something in this way. Um, even now I'm kind of thinking in the last segment, I was talking about power in a way that maybe it seemed like I had the power to know something, but I was sharing my thoughts on these issues, but I try to be very mindful of that. And I, but even still, as much as my presentation, I think tends to even be more tentative and hesitant than so forceful. I do sometimes hear feedback from people that, oh, you said this and I, you know, I just took it as, as totally the truth and you're right about this or everything you talk about. And sometimes maybe they think they're just giving me a compliment. They might not even really agree with that, but they'll say, oh, I agree with everything you're saying and things of that nature. And of course, the experience initially is it feels nice when someone says, oh, you're right about everything. Obviously, that feels good just on a surface level. But when you go a little bit deeper, you realize, well, first of all, I can't, I know I'm not, if I, being realistic with myself, I'm wrong all the time. Even if I listen to my shows from a few years ago, I'm sure I'll at least at minimum slightly disagree with myself on some things, or at least some of my thoughts have changed or evolved over the years. So even I don't fully agree with myself from uh, several years ago or even several months ago. But also what it might also bring up for me is the sense that are they, if they're genuine, are they actually listening to what I'm saying to really think about it. So as much as it might not feel good, I sometimes will like in a longer process if someone says, you know, I heard you talk about this and I like this part, but I didn't agree with this part. And again, the initial feeling is almost like a conflict or some disagreement, but that to me makes me feel like they much more carefully listened to what I was saying and they critically thought about what I was saying to have their own thoughts about it. And then likely I could potentially learn from them too. So hopefully there could be a mutual exchange. But if they said everything you said was right, nothing you said was wrong, perfect. Again, feels good. It's a lot easier. It's a lot smoother. Feels nice to, to take that in and try to even believe that. But I know that's not the reality. So uh, we often see this happening where there are people that have this symbiotic relationship. And as I said, it feels good. So we can get the the, the guru, the person who is the wise one, of course it feels good to them when people are praising them and saying you're never wrong and everything you say is right, but is this realistic? And the answer is no. It can't be that someone has all the answers. And you know, as you, you get older, I myself even, I realize when you're younger, you do get the sense that people know everything. Or you know, you go to a doctor and you think, well, my doctor just must know everything about medicine. It just feels that way and it's safer probably that way and some doctors might even present that way. But then as you get older, you recognize doctors can be incredibly knowledgeable, so helpful, so beneficial to, to so many people, literally saving lives, but still they don't know a lot of things. They're about medicine even especially, but you know they don't know a lot of things that they will get things wrong, that they don't know something, they don't know the new things that are coming out or all of the, the new information. And that's just the reality. And so, you know, I, I think it was a client once or someone said, you know, I realized no one knows anything in kind of a funny way. And it kind of made me laugh, but it kind of is true. And they didn't mean literally no one knows anything, but they were coming from this place where they were, I can't remember what it was, but let's say starting a job or starting some new type of education. They thought everyone coming from the imposter syndrome, you know, you show up, like, oh, everyone here 
already knows you know medicine i had a caller today and maybe he feels that way like i hope he won't but they all know things better than me or i'm not supposed to be here or actually the feeling is sometimes if they found out how stupid i was they would kick me out so you almost like feel like you're that's the imposter i shouldn't even be there and then you're there for a while and you're like everyone you know doesn't know some stuff they know some stuff they don't know some stuff i'm supposed to be here as much as anyone else is supposed to be here and so there is this sense that yes of course people are knowledgeable and they learn things and i'm all about listening to experts and trying to understand what they're they're telling us about what's going on in the world and different things but no one knows any everything for sure let's say that not that no one knows anything like i heard but no one knows everything you know, even I talk about how Einstein got things wrong in physics. He made incredible advance, advancements. Some people say maybe the most, you know, genius person ever to live, greatest mind, all these things. But he said a lot of things that were not right, even in the realm of physics and the, what he was doing, things that turned out to be wrong. And so if we're talking about Einstein, and we can't say everything he said was right, how can we believe that some person knows everything about something else or about everything, which is sometimes what we're looking for? So it's not as comfortable to do what I'm saying, which is to recognize that doesn't mean literally question everything anyone tells you. Um, what I actually think is the mindset that we can have is, I trust the authority to have the best knowledge we have about something. doesn't mean I think they're absolutely right or they won't make mistakes. But going back to my pilot analogy, doesn't mean I think, well, anyone could fly the plane because no one knows anything. No, I want a pilot with many years of experience who is competent in flying the plane to fly the plane. I'm not going to fly a plane tomorrow because I think no one knows anything. I think absolutely that individual knows a lot. Doesn't mean I think they're perfect or they can't make mistakes, but I trust them to be the best person to get me safely to my destination. So what I'm saying does not mean don't trust our authorities or it means that everything anyone says is wrong because I could hear that conclusion being taken. Okay, well, my doctor, you're saying they don't know everything, so no matter what they said is wrong. No, I would still say, if you're getting medical advice, the best thing you can do is to talk to your medical doctor and to take their advice. That's the best thing you can do. And in any field, that would be the best thing that we can do. But I'm also pointing out that we have to be very wary of people who want to sell to us that they have all the answers. And I see this getting proliferated on social media, uh, you know, as is happening with social media and the internet in general, it's kind of accelerating many human tendencies and putting them on steroids and, and putting them uh, in certain contexts that we never experience. But so you see a lot of people that are out there telling you they have all the answers about something, about um, you know mental health and relationships, about fitness, about diet, about uh, life in general, whatever it might be, or how you should live your life or dating. Because we're so anxious and that's part of the human experience, or part of human experience is anxiety and unknown and not having control. We're looking for people to tell us they have all the answers. So what I encourage us all to do, myself included, is to recognize that that feeling is going to be there. Because what happens is when someone shows up and says what I said, like, we, we know, I know everything about this, just listen to me and you'll be okay. It's very comforting to imagine that he or she is right and has all the answers. But we have to recognize when someone shows up and tells us they have all the answers, what I always think is either they're selling us a product or they're selling themselves in some way to you. They're trying to sell you something, which might even be part of themselves, a book or something like that, or themselves that follow me because they want your attention, they want your admiration, and then maybe eventually your money as well, but they want something from you. 
So if we recognize our human tendency to want to go away from that uncertainty and that anxiety, we can recognize that we're likely to be drawn towards people to tell us they have all the answers, but recognize that they don't. No one could do the thinking for you. No one has all the answers and no one can give you all the answers. And no one can give you all the answers of your life, even with that caller I was talking about, talking to today. I hope I gave him some thought, some insight, but I, I couldn't figure out his life for him because he has to, first of all, live the life that's right for him, and he has to find his path that makes sense for him that I can't know. He might have specific questions. If I want to go to this kind of school, what makes me most likely to get in? And I can help him with that, or someone else who has that knowledge can help him with that. But I can't tell him this is the life you need to live. So no one could tell us how to live our life. No one has all the answers. No one has all the ability to know what we should be doing in every step of the way of our life. We can seek guidance from others for sure. So it doesn't mean don't talk to other people. Definitely do that. Get feedback. Talk to people who have experience in different things. Talk to people who know certain things about what's going on. Talk to experts and people who are professionals in whatever field it is that you're talking about. But at the end of the day, recognize that you have to make the decision, which is both empowering and anxiety provoking. But trust that you can make a good decision and trust that you can make a decision that you can then live with the consequences. And when you do that, you'll be happy that you know the decision you made and the actions you took were based on what you wanted, not based on what someone else thought or told you that you should do for yourself and your life. No one could do the thinking for you, but the good news is you're perfectly capable of doing it on your own. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. A big thank you to Batis here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. Have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.